Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Every time I think about you, I pod myself. <laughs> Uh, hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? A little bit disturbed. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but uh, yeah, really good. You want to see me pod myself. <laughs> I have seen it many times, Kevin. It never, ever ceases to enthrall me. <laughs> yeah, I said the word enthrall in a sexual way, so there you go. What a start. <laughs> Right, it's part two of the first part in our live albums clash. I went through Queen live at Wembley a couple of weeks ago. Kev, what are we doing today? We're doing Bowie at Glastonbury 2000. Bowie. <laughs> Look, I have a um, wavering pronunciation. No, you don't. You always say it wrong. It's Bowie. <laughs> we are doing Bowie at Glastonbury 2000. Uh, but before that, it is the return of our much-loved feature, Video Killed the Radio Star. And Kev, it is... Your pick today, and what a pick it is. It is. It's an absolute belter. Mm-hmm. Celeptastic. So it is. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. It is the video for Make Some Noise, which is uh, the third single from the Beastie Boys' final album, uh, Hot Sauce Committee Part 2. I mean, what a great name for an album. Yes. And it's essentially it's a sequel to the Fight for Your Right video. Starring um, Seth Rogen, Danny McBride and Elijah Wood as the three uh, main members of the Beastie Boys uh, continuing their party and their shenanigans throughout uh, New York. Absolutely. So what I would say is I think Elijah Wood is particularly great as Ad-Rock. Yeah, I mean, that's perfect. (laughs) It's directed by the much-loved and sadly-missed Adam Yauch aka mca and like what so should we just go through the list of people or some of the people who are in the video uh, making cameo appearances so yeah it includes uh, rashida jones will arnett jason schwartzman mary steenbergen ted danson steve buscemi maya rudolph kirsten dunst david cross orlando bloom and right at the end, uh, Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, and Jack Black as older versions of the Beastie Boys. It's brilliant. Will Ferrell's in it twice because he also yes, plays he the limo driver earlier on. It is brilliant. It is absolutely fucking brilliant. And the DeLorean as well, where the older versions of yeah. the Beastie Boys step out at the end. It's it's such a Beastie Boys video, and yet they don't appear in it at all because. Well, sadly, MCA was he, he was too ill to appear. Uh, it was not long before he, he very sadly passed away. Can I tell you about the extended version? Oh, please do. I didn't know okay. there was an extended version. So a 30-minute long version written and directed by MCA um, and entitled Fight for Your Right Revisited was released the following day to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the original song. It's an extended version of the music video with additional segments followed by a dance battle between uh, the Beastie Boys and their future selves that ends with both past and future versions urinating on each other and everyone getting arrested by the police. 
played by the actual Beastie Boys. I need to see this. Yeah. <laughs> I need to see this. Wow. 30 minute long, you say? Yes. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. The one thing I'll say about it, as much as I love his performance, is Danny McBride not just playing Danny McBride? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> but uh, as well as it being a really good video, it's a cra- it's a really good Beastie Boys song as it's well. Brilliant, yeah. I mean, um, we need to do some Beasties, Kev. Yeah, so we will do. Yep, really great choice. I'd never seen the video before. Uh, and I now I'm going to go and see the 30-minute version <laughs> of the video. So, uh, yeah, in fact, what we'll do is we'll share the link to both the video and to the extended version of the video, assuming both are available on YouTube, which I am sure they are. Presumably. Yeah. Okay, great stuff. Shall we start going through Bowie live at Glastonbury? Yes, yeah, so it's a live album, obviously, by Bowie, um, recorded during his Sunday night headline slot at Glastonbury on the 25th of June 2000. The album itself was uh, released on Parlophone on the 30th of November uh, 2018. And the actual performance, um, similar to the Stones one a few years later, they only showed excerpts on the BBC and it wasn't until 2020 that the actual full set was shown on the BBC. But okay. the 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 performance was released on uh, as a DVD at the same time as as the um, album release. So it's it's interesting because Bowie uh, had made his so had played Glastonbury in 1971 prior to him becoming. You know, it's just before the release of Hunky Dory. Yeah, I was going to say. So he was Hunky Dory. Was it the year after Hunky Dory came out? Yes. And and, and sorry, Hunky Dory came out the year after that performance. Is what I meant. And that, like you said, that's when he's on the cusp of becoming Bowie. You know, it's it's before Ziggy and all that. So he's about to go absolutely stratospheric. So it would have been really interesting to be back in '71 watching Bowie at what at that time was just a fairly parochial little folk festival in the southwest of England, I guess. Well, it's it's interesting because it was the second edition of the festival. Pink Floyd's had pulled out uh, because the Glastonbury mud um, had prevented them from getting their vast equipment on stage. And that's still Sid Barrett era Floyd. So yeah, still so... all, you know, plinky plonky, all... Shite. Well, they did have light shows. Yeah, okay. So Bowie played the um, much uh, coveted 4.30 in the morning slot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. um, So he he said, as part of the uh, Glastonbury oral history of mud music, uh, music, mud and magic, said it was 1971 and I was bottom of the bill. I remember my going on stage time being shoved later and later. So it was originally scheduled to go on at midnight, but things got so delayed they didn't make it on stage till around five in the morning. Yeah, but all the fucking druids would have loved that because, you know, sunrise and all that. Well, in the meantime, he uh, decided to take some mushrooms with his mate Terry Reid. Um, so he can't really remember very much about <laughs> his performance. <laughs> 
Excellent. By the time I was due to perform, I was flying and could hardly see my little electric keyboard or my guitar. I have no recollection of the show itself, although I seem to recall a strange girl getting up on stage and whirling away, mostly without any music playing, while the audience cheerfully awoke from its slumbers. So he talks about that during the performance, doesn't he? He does, yes. Sorry, I was just going to say as well that... um... It's interesting you say, so he took some mushrooms and couldn't remember anything, ever, any, couldn't remember anything from his performance, which is probably a similar experience to pretty much anyone that plays the Glade <laughs> after 11pm nowadays at Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah. So when it came to the 2000 show, so it'd been mooted for a while. A Sunday newspaper declared that Bowie would top the bill at Glastonbury before he'd actually signed up for it. Unfortunately, this happened later, and it meant that Prince didn't fucking play when he was supposed mm-hmm. to. And we were there. Yeah. And because Barry wasn't convinced it'd be a good idea, because the thing is, is that what we don't remember, or the, the record-buying public probably don't remember now, is that up until sort of Earthling in 97, he'd been in the doldrums, really. That he'd, he'd done the whole... He'd done the whole tin machine thing, which was it was an interesting experiment, but turned people off him. He'd done the Buddha of Sub- Suburbia soundtrack, which which was good, but you know, weird old fi- film though, wasn't it? Yeah, and he'd gone into he'd gone into all kinds of. So he did the outside album, and you know the his relevance had sort of kind of died off. And then he he returns back with Earthling, where it's a bit more drum and bass, it's a bit more up-to-date with what's going on. Mm, We'll get on to that, Kev. Yeah. But so by 2000, he's sort of on his his way back into the figure that he, he very much became. And so he wasn't sure that going to Glastonbury was going to do him any good. And at that time, you know, Glastonbury didn't sell out. But when it was announced he was going to headline on the Sunday, it did eventually sort of improve the sales and everything, and it did ultimately lead to it being a sellout and 250,000 people being there. The week of the festival, Bowie falls ill with laryngitis, and it was very much touch and go that he was actually going to perform. Mike Garson, in a thread on Twitter um, in 2019, talks about sort of, so he was really nervous, Bowie, about how it's going to go down. So Mike Garson said, I felt David's apprehension. He just seemed a little nervous. He took a breath, looked me straight in the eye and asked me to go out to warm up the audience on my own, much like he asked me 27 years earlier at the Hammersmith Odeon in London on the night he would be retiring Ziggy Stardust forever. Yeah, we'll come to that as well. Well, and so he starts it, and the uh, <laughs> it's funny this because Mike Garson and he tells us he tells the story of it. So he goes out to start playing, and there's no sound, <laughs> and he he's like he he can see how many people are there, and he's out there, and he's pressing on his keyboard, and there's no sound coming, and like all the crew run on, and they can't work out what's going on, and he's sh- absolutely shitting himself. So again, return back to his uh, tale. The three minutes I was on stage without any sound felt like three years. It finally dawned on me that the volume on my keyboard was turned off. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Brilliant. 
So it wouldn't surprise me if I was the one who turned it all the way down after our sound check. Oh boy. He said, I started to play Green Sleeves. I've no idea why. I played it at a fairly brisk tempo because I knew the audience was waiting for their real hero to take to the stage. The rest of the band started to walk out on stage whilst I began to wind down and finish my improv. Then David walked out and the crowd went crazy. We played for them for two hours. After having played with David for more than a thousand shows, I can easily report that our night last room was my favorite concert. I remember okay. the thrill of playing Life on Mars with the audience knowing every word to that, not to mention every other song we played. And that's kind of, I mean, I've got some some other things to say about the sort of how it was received and everything, but we will... We'll, we can come to that. Yeah. So, um, Tim, when was the first time you heard this? Uh, so I wasn't at Glastonbury 2000. I'd been the two years prior to 2000. Uh, the, the first two times I went to Glastonbury, I didn't go in 2000. I did Reading that year. I watched what the BBC did show off his set list. But this is the first time I've actually listened to the whole album and the whole set list through is researching this clash. How about you? I also wasn't at Glastonbury for this. Um, I did watch what what you could see of the performance um, at the time, and I when it when it came out, um, <laughs> yeah, I listened to it because you know. Well, I think I think regular listeners know I'm a bit of a fan. Yeah, we have established Kev likes Bowie. What I will say, and this is not an advertisement for the BBC, but and the. the Obviously, the evolution in technology has very much helped this, but the coverage that they provide now of the festival is excellent because you are mm-hmm. able to see entire sets, not just from the pyramid stage headliners, but from so many of the. Fuck acts. me! You can see the park. Well, which exactly? And the last time I went, they didn't have cameras at the park stage. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, yeah, Glasgow good. Although there's a good reason there isn't wrong cameras in uh, the dance area. I want I want cameras in the Glade. That's <laughs> I just want a, tw- a 24 hour live video feed. What, like, or, or just in Arcadia, like at about three in the morning, like the Big Brother House. Just fucking stick the cameras on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, artwork. So it's a fairly basic artwork. It's um, it's very much a digital release artwork where it's a yeah. picture of Bowie whilst he's performing with a very simple font over the top, yeah. really. Yeah, exactly. A good return of font game chat. <laughs> yeah. I agree. It's a very simple font. He's wearing a silly jacket. Uh, and that's uh, those are his words. Uh, yes, he, he admits it. It's a he silly is jacket. too vain to take it off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have nothing else to say. Right, let's get into it. Okay, so as mentioned, the album opens with a performance of Green Sleeves done by a long-term keyboardist, Mike Garson. Mm. Sort of a jazzy version of it to open the set. Uh, my note says, I can imagine it being played in a swanky hotel lobby. <laughs> uh, so I-, I would like to read to you my notes. <laughs> Uh, which I would like to read in the theme of a piece of performance art. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I will be playing two voices here, uh, one being Mike Garson, the other being David Bowie. Hey Dave, how should we open the big show at Glastow? Starman, Let's Dance, you know, start big, that kind of thing. No, I think we should start with a lounge piano version of Greensleeves. 
Sorry, Dave, I must have misheard you. I thought you said you wanted a lounge piano version of Greensleeves. I did, Mike. Is there a problem? No, 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 Dave, you're the boss. What the fuck is this? Yeah, I mean, what I'll, what I'll say is... So I agree that it's shit. I'd like, and, like, I like Mike Garson, and he's very good on Twitter, but... but a lot of bands come out to interesting things. Like, you don't normally have it included into the live album. So you don't get that with Queen, where what they're... No. So it's an interesting choice to include it, but I suppose it for... It's a shit choice to include well, it. Well, for, for the purpose of having the whole set, then, okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's uh, move on, because yeah, neither of us... Please move on. So we then go on to Wild is the Wind, uh, taken from uh, Station to Station. Yeah, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's a cover, so it's an odd choice to start, is the first thing I'll say. It's performed very well. I think Bowie's voice is in ultra Bowie mode. So I will come to that. So I'll, okay. I'll let you... I'll let you um... I really like the guitar solo at the end, but it's hardly one of his most beloved songs in it. And it goes back to my poorly performed one-act stage play. <laughs> You start big. What did Queen start with? They start with One Vision. Even let's let's just talk Glasgow. McCartney recently starts mm-hmm. with Can't Buy Me Love. Brilliant. The Stones you mentioned, Jumping Jack Flash. Even you two, a set which was very derided harshly, I think. They started massive, even better than the real thing. I'm sorry, Dave, but no one thinks Bowie and thinks, oh, I really like his cover of Wild in the Wind from Station to Station in 1976. What is going on here? So, strong disagree. I fucking love this. <laughs> because I, so stay, I will hold my hand up. Station to Station is one of my favourite Bowie albums. So there's a lot of Station to Station. So this is a set that, yeah, there is, that yeah. I really enjoy. <laughs> Do you see my point, though? No, 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 I get get your point. You've got some bellend playing green sleeves. Okay, we know Mike Garson is not some bellend, but if I'm at Glastonbury and I don't really know that much about David Bowie, Mike Garson is some bellend. Green sleeves? Fuck's that. Why is the theme tune from Lassie being played (laughs) in David Bowie's set? (laughs) Then he fucking comes on with a Johnny Mathis cover. I, I so this this like I love this song and I love this the... is a song for hardcore Bowie fans and if you're at Glastonbury you do not start your set with a song for hardcore. I'm okay fans. with it. I am very much okay with it. And thank you for proving my point. I will hold I will hold my hands up and say like I think it's be it like what I like about it as the way to start the set is that they're often so you can go bombastic straight away. This like yeah. given that they've started with Greensleeve the as a sort of gentle opening, the I think it's a beautiful version. I think it's amazingly performed. Earl Slick returning on guitar. Earl Slick, who played on station to station, is great, as you said. It's a really good Brilliant guitar, guitar solo. solo. And I'll be coming back to Earl Slick a lot. Oh yeah, because he's fucking great on this. Mm-hmm. Gail Ann Dorsey, who we'll be talking a lot about. We will, yeah. On bass is, is fantastic. Mike Garson's really good. So like the band is tight. You've got to say yeah. that. As I said, it's performed very well. But this is not a show opener. I'm okay with it. No, no, no. <sighs> We're going to have a lot of this. We are going to have a very lot of this. Okay. So, 
we move on to a song that we have covered before on um, Album Clash, uh, China yeah. Girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Earl Slick's guitar on this makes it much heavier than the um, Let's Dance version. I'll definitely put Agreed. that. What I will say, I have a theory about, about this and uh, the version of Changes as well, that you can tell that he was nervous about his voice because there's there's a lot... Certainly at the early inception of the set, there's a lot of Bowie inflections. He does it in China Girl, and he does it a lot in Changes, and we'll come on to that. As I said, it's ultra Bowie. Yeah, and I think that's down to the fact that he, he wasn't quite sure how his voice would sort of mm-hmm. hang out. So he was... He yep. was it's a little parody. I think it's a good. I think it's a good performance of it, though. Okay, so we have spoken before, as you said, about my hatred of Bowie's interpretation of this song. It starts off badly, and that, that this is the general version, not not necessarily limited to this version. It starts off badly with what I consider to be a, well, frankly, somewhat racist intro, which is basically Nick from Turning Japanese. I, and I, I genuinely mean that. It really does great, the intro to Bowie's version of this song. It's a bad pastiche of... It's just this, this live version, and even more so, I agree, the Let's Dance version, it's got none of the raw emotion of Iggy's version, which you can go back and listen to mm-hmm. our review of The Idiot. It's about an infatuation with someone, Okay. This has got none of that emotion. It's admirably performed. But if that's the nicest compliment I can pay it, then we're in trouble. Uh, so we are two songs and a wanky intro in. <laughs> I'm not having a great time. I'm sorry. I'm all right. <laughs> okay. We then move on to changes, or as he sings it, changes. <laughs> jazz. Like a cross between Brett Anderson and Rick Astley. I, I love the crowd singing along with it. The crowds are definitely into into this. I, th- I do. I do think this is the the worst element of him being nervous about his voice. He doesn't really sing, particularly the chorus, as well as I've I've heard him sing it. So you saw Bowie live, didn't you? Yes, I did. I actually saw him on his last tour. So it's it's done well, but yeah, I think the there is there are issues with with how he sings it. I'll I'll admit to that. So, yeah. So, first thing I'll say, I think this is actually a a really good performance of a song I really like. Okay? I've been very critical so far. I've always liked changes, and I think on the whole, this is a good performance. And for the first time in the album so far, I'm enjoying what I'm listening to. I agree with you about the voice. There is definitely an apprehension to the way he sings it, which when you learned that he was suffering with laryngitis just a few days before is understandable but that's not my biggest problem the problem i have i'm sorry it's mark garson again during the verses and again at the end you've got the lounge piano sound why it's not adding to it's 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 detracting from my enjoyment significantly i find it very irritating it's it's completely jarring with the way everyone else is playing this song i'm sorry i don't i don't enjoy it at all okay but 
by the end of the song, he's stopped doing that. He's realised this ain't working, or he's just going along with how the rest of the band are playing, and it's fine. As I said, on the whole, I like this. I've enjoyed this, but there's that element of Mike Garson's playing which really sticks in the craw for me. Okay, fair enough. Um, so we will move on to the next song, which is "Stay," taken again from uh, Station Station, Shakespeare's sister's cover. <laughs> so again, I will admit to a prior. I fucking love. I've always liked this because it kind of, to me, this song is the bridge between young Americans and um, low. So Carlos Alomar, his guitar and Earl Slick's guitar um, work on it. You know, the, it's got that real funk vibe to it. Yes. But it has that, it also has the kind of icy detachment of the Berlin period as well. So I've, I've always been a fan of Stay. This is fucking great. Earl Slick is so good. So good here. A hard agree. I, I've got little to add, actually. I think it's got a great funk to it all the way through. Some not just from Earl Slick, but he, the rhythm guitar has got some great mm-hmm. Nile Rogers style licks throughout it. It's not one of his most well-known songs, but it's really upbeat. It's really funky. It's a great rock song. The solo at the end from Earl Slick is fucking brilliant. It's a it's, face melter. It absolutely is a face melter. Yeah, like it a lot. So, yeah, we are for once on this album so far, <laughs> at least, in full agreement. Okay, so then we move on to the little-known Life on Mars. Did you know, by the way, that Rick Wakeman played piano on the original version of this, Kev? He's barely mentioned that. <laughs> Indeed. So I like the fact that it's a stripped-back opening because they could just go full balls deep on it. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that they tease it a little bit. Yeah, agreed. And it builds into something great, and it's it's a it's a classic song. I, I, yes, it is, and I I agree with what you said about the start, with with an exception that because you've still got the cringe-worthy lounge piano style fill after the first chorus. I'm starting I'm starting to get really pissed off with Mike Garson at this point. Fortunately, it's the last time I noticed that in his performance. But I was like, just play the fucking song, you. Bowie's voice sounds great here. Mm-hmm. He's really growing into the gig. It absolutely is. It's full of emotion. He's quiet, not restrained, but quiet when he needs to be quiet. And he belts it out when the song reaches the crescendos midway and, and certainly at the end. Like you said, I, I like the way that it starts off subtly stripped down and then builds. This has always been one of my favourite Bowie songs. And for the first time on the album, as much as I loved Stay, I started to feel the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end mm-hmm. as it's building. However, I'm sorry to say there's a massive but that they don't stick the landing because without the orchestral section... It completely dies at the end and it leaves me wanting. It's building and it's building and it's building to everything and then it's just nothing. It's such a disappointing end. And don't tell me, oh, it's Glastonbury, it's hard to get an orchestral section. Fucking Elbow had an orchestral section three times in in the sort of late 2000s, early 2010s. We both love Elbow and Mm -hmm. they are great with an orchestral section. It's not beyond Bowie to have some fucking strings. Even a guy on timpani's going bum, 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 bum at the end because that would have made this 
It would have elevated it so much. They do not stick the landing. Everything's great about this right up to the last 20 seconds and then it just loses it all for me. I'm really sorry. I fucking love this song. This ain't it. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't agree with you. But Do you see where I'm coming from? No, no, at I, least? Understand, I understand the point that yes, it could be it could be better that if you had the full orchestra, you could go you could go bigger with it. I, I don't I don't think that's an unfair point to make. I don't think that they failed to land it, but I think the landing could be smoother. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So then we move on to absolute beginners. Now, it's not a song that I've been particularly keen on. 80s Bowie. But what I will say is that you can definitely hear him growing in confidence that his voice is standing up to the gig. He belts it out. I think it's performed well. I'm not a huge fan of this of this song, and I, li- I, I enjoyed this performance. Uh, I don't disagree. I wasn't familiar with this song at all uh, until I listened to this album. I've spoken before about my views on Bowie's output in the 80s. It is well performed, although I would say, again, you hear Bowie really exaggerating his Brixton accent for I don't know why. But I can't say that the song or its performance leaves any real impression on me. Again, it's admirably performed, but it's an odd choice to be on a set list. Like this, that's all I'm going to say. I suppose he, he wanted to get something mid-80s. I mean, there's all sorts. Of, he could have got Jagger on stage and played Dancing in the Street. <laughs> well, get the, get the trackies on. It's not even trackies, get the shellies on. <laughs> Can we just say, by the way, and obviously not the Bowie and Jagger version, but Martha and the Vandellas, Dancing in the Street, is legitimately possibly the greatest pop song ever recorded. I mean, it's definitely up there. It is definitely up there, uh, but it's not on this, uh, and it's not even by David Bowie, so no. let's move on. <laughs> but we move on to a legitimately great pop song. It's Ashes to Ashes, uh, Fun to Funky. Gail Ann Dorsey is a fucking amazing bassist. The slap bass in this is fucking great. Oh. Uh, before we get to that, though, I have a problem with uh, what uh, Mr. Bowie says at the start of this song. He says, this song is much later than any of them so far. No, it isn't, dickhead. You've just played a song from 1986. (laughs) Fucking Scary Monsters came out in 1980. So that's six years before then. Yes, but the drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, Gail and Dorsey sounds great on this. So I'll go, if you you don't mind, I'll go here. Yeah, sure. I have never been a particular fan of Ashes to Ashes. Again, it's 80s Bowie. But I really like this version. I, I think the rhythm section is fucking brilliant. They give it such more depth than the album version. Um, and as I said, the, the, the bass from Gail and Dorsey is brilliant. Yeah, this is a really good version of a song which I've never been too keen on. So I'm a fan. Tight as fuck. Yeah, absolutely right. It's it's brilliant. Like I I like Ashes to Ashes, so you know, but the band are great. You know, we need to I think we do need to um name check Sterling Campbell, who's great on the drums. Mm-hmm. It's just done brilliantly. Yeah. So we're gonna move on to the little known uh, number Rebel Rebel. 
a song about the late father of Gary and Phil Neal. <laughs> or alternatively, a bag of sweets. <laughs> the band are absolutely cooking now. Rebel Rebel's a belter. Yep. Bowie's sounding great now. He's, his confidence is up on his voice. The band are, are great. Everything is perfect. I agree. It's a great rock song with a great guitar riff. An all-time classic guitar riff, actually. Bow, bow, down, 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 down. Everyone knows that yeah. riff. And I think at this point we do need to talk again about Bowie's voice. So he's 53 years old mm-hmm. at the time of this performance. And as you said, and as we've referred to a number of times, he's days before this gig been diagnosed with laryngitis and has just recovered. So, yeah, okay, he's not got the same voice as he had in the mid-70s, but fucking hell, he absolutely belts this out. He sounds great on this. Great. So he's clearly got the confidence in his voice. The band, as you said, is massively into its groove now. Mike Garson's decided to fuck off the lounge piano bollocks, which has pissed (laughs) me off. He stays in his lane now. Brilliant. Earl Slick's guitar, great. Everyone's tight as fuck. Really, really like this. Good stuff. Okay. So we then move into 90s Bowie. (sighs) Little wonder. Can I read my notes, please? Sure. (laughs) All right. Gene Genie. Sound and Vision. (laughs) Space Oddity. Oh, You Pretty Thing. A song he mentions during this performance and yet doesn't play. They are just four of the beloved David Bowie songs that did not make the set list for this supposedly seminal performance. However, he did decide to include this embarrassingly cynical drum and bass crossover cash grab from the mid-90s. Fuck off, you little wonder, little wonder, you. It is an objectively terrible song. Even for Bowie, his cockney Harry Enfield affectations are cringe-inducingly exaggerated. I will give credit to the band. They do their absolute utmost to try and make this fit within the performance. But it is just shit. I hate everything about this. Okay. So, I don't feel like you do. Because I don't hate Little Wonder. But I cannot disagree with you that given this is essentially largely a greatest hit set, Mm -hmm. it does feel jarring. And particularly given the two that you've had before, what you're going into, yeah, it it doesn't work. I, I I think the band, I think you're right that the band do the best they can with it. I don't feel as strongly against it as you do. I think Earthling is a fucking dreadful album. <laughs> it's a lovely jacket, though. It's a lovely no, jacket. No, it isn't a lovely jacket. I'm sorry. It's a fucking Billy Brexit jacket. It's, <laughs> no, no. He was reclaiming the flag. But no, that's just... The... <sighs> anyway, we're not Do... talking about Earthling. No, we've got lots to go through. I don't like it okay. at all. Let's, let's move on. Golden Years. Yet another one from station to station, and not the last one from station to station either. No. Yeah, I'm having a lovely time because I really enjoy station to station. Just hold that thought for a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) What I will say, excuse me for going first, I have always liked Golden Years. I think it's another really funky guitar riff. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great song to dance to. 
I have nothing in particular to highlight about this particular performance of it, other than that everyone's really good. It sounds tight. I enjoy listening to it. And had I been there, I think it would have been absolutely great to be in that crowd. Yeah, I can't. I, I have nothing to add to that. Um, I think you've summed it up really well. Uh, the only other thing I will say is that this was included on the soundtrack to the 2002 Heath Ledger vehicle, A Knight's Tale. Is that right? <laughs> which included uh, amongst the cast Paul Bettany as Geoffrey Chaucer. What? <laughs> yep, I have not made that up. It's not an acid trip or a malarial dream. Those are factual words. Paul Bettany plays Chaucer. Paul Bettany plays Geoffrey Chaucer in A Knight's Tale. Well, uh, there you go. <laughs> Kevin is equal parts nonplussed and staggered by the words that have just come out of my mouth. I mean, that's more surprising than him playing a deranged monk in the uh, interminable... Um, oh, God. Dan Brown-based films. Yeah, well, which exactly? Uh, let's definitely move on from that <laughs> into fame, fashion. <laughs> uh, this is a sexy song, isn't it's it? It's br- it's I fucking love fame. Like, I mean, obviously, you have really acidic Lennon vocal on the original, which you don't get yeah. here. But what you do get is a really good chunky guitar. Band's great, funky. Bowie sounding great. Ah. Oh. All good things. So genuinely, I'm kind of surprised to hear you talk about Station to Station in such glowing terms, and not Young Americans, because I think Young Americans is a brilliant album. Oh no, I fucking, don't get me wrong, I fucking love Young Americans. Like, Young Americans is his Blue-Eyed Soul album, so I'm all over that. I I just also love Station to Station. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, Fame's a great song, and... That guitar riff is, it is filth, utter filth. The rhythm section on this performance is, again, brilliant. You've got massive drums. You've got massive bass. The rhythm guitar is funky. Everything comes together brilliantly. And again, Bowie is absolutely on it. Mm-hmm. And the final thing I'll say, we've praised Gail Ann Dorsey for her bass playing. I think her backing vocals on this are brilliant, actually. Oh, um, we will definitely get onto her backing vocals. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, you see, I'm not all negative. Uh, I'm really enjoying this section of the performance. This, If I'm going to see Bowie at Glastonbury, these are the songs I want to hear. Uh, not drum and bass shite from the mid-1990s. So, um, well, he moves on from that into a really good sing-along festival song. Mm-hmm. It's a great choice. It's a great mid-set choice. Well, do you need to say what it is? So, it is All the Young Dudes. So, yep. uh, the Mot the Hoople song written by Bowie for the band. Yeah. Yeah, and it's oh, great stuff. Absolutely great stuff here. It is great stuff. So I I love all the young dudes, always have. I think anyone who loves classic rock from the 60s, 70s will love all the young dudes. Bowie sounds great again. The band is tight again. Everyone is into their groove, as you said before. It's brilliant. My only complaint, and I know this is me being me, so yeah, Pedantic Tim's back, is that not once but twice... Earl Slick gets the main riff of all the young dudes wrong. 
and that really annoys me. It really annoys me. And 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 to, to the casual listener, it's probably like, oh, that's a nice improvisation. But to me, it's like it's fucking all the young dudes. Just play it, will you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Other than that, it's fucking fantastic. This it sounds great. Okay. So then we uh, move on to, well, the crowd are having a lovely time now and they have a lovely sing-along to the next song, uh, Man Who Sold The World, which it's a really simple version, but it's a beautiful performance. And that extended ending, I really, I really enjoy. Again, it's excellently done. The band are great, sung well. It's a great song. Yeah, I've, I've got nothing more. I agree with everything you've just said. I vehemently agree with everything you've just said. But this isn't really David Bowie's song anymore, is it? Yes, it is. No, it's... You know what I mean? Oh, so... No, I, I understand I understand that, obviously, it's taken on a different life with the MTV Unplugged Nirvana version. And yeah. Kurt Cobain sounds amazing singing it, but both versions can exist. And, and I, I'm, I'm okay. Like, I love... The Nirvana version, but I also love the Bowie version, and so do I. And I'm being contrary deliberately. You're right; it's a great song, and it's a Bowie song. He wrote it and performed it. It's brilliant, but it's grown far beyond Bowie. It's not just that that performance by well, I'm going to say Kurt Cobain specifically, actually, mm-hmm. in the Nirvana Unplugged set because it's his performance on on so many of those tracks not least of all this, it's so iconic and it's so poignant considering what was to happen just a few months later, tragically, that it's not really Bowie's song anymore. I, I, See, I, 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 I would, and maybe this is, this is a preference thing because I would, I would argue of that set, it's more the lead belly, uh, where did you sleep last night? Oh yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with you there. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and I'm going to be completely honest as well and say that the Nirvana version was the first time I'd heard this song. Uh, so that will that, that is undoubtedly in my thinking there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not taking anything away from this song or the performance of this song on this album. It's really good. It's really great. But it doesn't have anything near the emotional impact that the MTV Unplugged by Nirvana version does. And that's all I can say. Well, yeah, I mean, and that, that's that's natural because of what, yeah. what you know happens relatively soon after. I suppose if you might feel different if this was a performance off the last tour, maybe. Maybe, yeah. And I can't comment on that because I didn't see the last tour. Yeah. Um, anyway. It's, oh, we are agreed it is a very strong performance of a very good song. <laughs> so we go on to, well, we've talked about the album a lot. <laughs> I was going to say, what album is the next song from, Kev? <laughs> so stay, So the song is Station to Station. And I will admit that I think it's a very interesting choice. I adore, I think this is a fucking brilliant song. I love this song. It's a bold choice for a Glastonbury set. <laughs> Because it's it's not an easy song, one to perform, because it's there's all kinds of shit going on with it. It's not an obvious one, that, but the thing I'm like, I really like the album and I really like the song, so I, I'm bang into it. 
but I I admit that there is a bias here. So this is a really interesting shift in in our usual roles. <laughs> Uh, full disclosure, I'm starting to flag a little bit by this point in the album. And there's still eight songs to go. And this one is the best part of ten minutes long. So, strap in. So, you, we talked about this. <laughs> every class, pretty much, we talked about this. I love a long song. Mm-hmm. But I love a long song that does something. Right, there's absolutely no reason at all why we need 90 seconds worth of train noises before there's even a hint of because anything. Because that's happening. how it starts. Be quiet, it's my turn to talk. Okay. No, you, I interrupt you all the time, sorry. I get it, okay, that's how it starts. But you've just said, you're at Glastonbury, it's a greatest hit set. 90 seconds before anything approaching a rhythm section starts to come in. And even when it does kick in and the song progresses, you said there's all sorts of stuff going on. Is there? Is there really? There are some bits where it gets faster. There are some bits where it gets slower. But to me, it just sort of happens around me. There's, it's very, very well performed. And I'll be honest, there are times when I'm I'm into it, actually, because there's some great rhythms in there. There are some great riffs in there. So I'm not saying it's terrible, but it's twice as long as it needs to be. It, unnecessary, indulgent, and quite boring. I'm so I'm a fan of the song, and it is a very good rendition of it. What I can say is, well, there's a line: "It's not the effects of the cocaine." <laughs> I'm going to say that the the length of the original, as it, it was, very much down to the effects of the cocaine. Even I can say that. Yeah, as I say, I'm very much playing against type here, um, but this didn't resonate with me. I'm sorry, it didn't. Fair enough. I I will not deny that, I mean, the amount of station to station is genuinely surprising. Mm -hmm. I'm all right with that, but then, like, when... (laughs) Like when I when I saw him, like the the most excited I got was uh, the fact that he, that he played five years um, <laughs> off of Ziggy, which is a song about the end of the mm-hmm. world. So you know <laughs> that may say a lot about me. <laughs> the last thing I want to say about it, though, uh, is that to me, at least. You can see in this song just how much Blur were influenced by Bowie. Oh, God, yeah. Particularly in the modern life is rubbish and part life era. There's so much of what ends up on those two albums that I think is influenced by this song. Okay. We shall move on. And we move from a song that maybe the crowd didn't know as much about to one that they may well have heard of <laughs> so yes it's Starman and yeah the crowd are bang into this can you believe this is the first song from Ziggy Stardust that is included on this show And as... it is it is quite the, it's quite a but it shows you how much he's got to choose oh absolutely from. he's got but, so by this time he's got what 30 plus years of back catalogue to go oh, I'm going to have that one so you know it, mm-hmm. prolific it is Absolutely the word you would use to describe Bowie. But, I mean, the first thing I'll say is this should open the set because it's a fucking great performance of it as well. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Everyone is absolutely on point. And Bowie himself 
absolutely nails it vocally. And okay, perhaps he decided to put it later in the set because he wasn't convinced that his vocals would be up to speed at the start of the show. All right, I get that. But this should open the set, Kev. It absolutely should open the set. It's fucking great. No, I can I can understand that as as much as I like Wild as the Wind, I can get on board with what you're saying there. Um, but I can't disagree with anything else that you said because everything's great. Yeah. Okay, we move on to Hello Space Boy. Hello Space Boy. So, okay, I'll I'll hear what you've got to say about it first. I- I've only written six words. Where are the pet shop boys? <laughs> so, would you like my notes on it? Please. That's generally the point of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's it's not one of my favourites, but I really like this performance because it's it's quite like, and maybe it's uh, it's Earl Slick related. Mm-hmm. He's great on it, but it's like it's quite heavy. It's it's less dance and it's more it's more metal, really. Yeah, but Gary Newman did a metal period. Doesn't mean it's any good. No, I I enjoyed I enjoyed this version of it, and I, it's not a song that I particularly like. I think it's really well done, and I did like it. Actually, like I went following listening to this, I then did have a look at some other live performances of this song, and it this was generally how he would perform it, which is less dance and more as a as a heavy rock song and i do like that about it at the risk of repeating myself where are the pet shop boys (laughs) (laughs) i have nothing more to say i don't like it let's move on okay fair enough (laughs) you you just want uh, chris lowe and his boy hat uh, no, I want Chris Lowe stuck behind a TV or massive screen that won't move on. <laughs> Can't get out. <laughs> I mean, Glasgow goes full spinal tap. Let's be honest. <laughs> Chris Lowe with his Derek Smalls moment. <laughs> so, which raises an interesting question, actually. Do you think he had problems getting to the metal detectors when he was getting onto site? <laughs> was he wearing a shrink shirt? <laughs> Uh, go and watch Spinal Tap. I mean, you obviously all have if you listen to this show. Of course, you must. If you listen to this, you must have listened to Spinal Tap. Okay. Yeah, let's go on to Under Pressure. So we can compare it with our song from two weeks ago that was. So it was performed by Queen on their um, version. This is so much better. I'm sorry. Because Gail Ann Dorsey matches Bowie's voice and she's fantastic. I think. She sounds great. I think the band are great. She's a really good bassist as well, so that fucking mm-hmm. helps as well. I mean, other than your praise for Gail Ann Dorsey, I'm amazed because pretty much every word of what you just said was wrong. <laughs> I, honestly, the, the first two words I've written, needs Freddy. It, it does. Yes, of course it would be better. With... And, and this, the, uh, no, 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 It's not just that it'd be better. Let's get this absolutely clear. Comparing these two live versions together, for me, puts to rest any discussion about whether Freddie or Bowie was the better vocalist or the better frontman. It's just, it's, it's, be, it, it, without Freddie Mercury, this song is nothing. Bowie does his best. Gail Ann Dorsey does her best, but I'm sorry, Kev. Even with Roger Taylor on backing vocals, this is a vastly inferior version to the version that 
was on the Live at Wembley album. So I, I have a strong disagree there. You just got the, a Bowie hard on. No, no, no. You like, do. Well, I said, I said when we when we went through it, is that I couldn't really hear Freddie. Like Roger Taylor's voice is turned far too high up in oh, the mix, which I agreed with. No, so I can't hear Freddie on that version. But I would, I would say that Gail Ann Dorsey's voice is too high in the mix here, and she performs it really well. She's she's a better singer than Roger Taylor, so I'm not going to disagree with you there. Bowie's singing it very low. He's singing it. Very low, and actually, a lot of the high notes in the original are from Bowie. Uh, no, this is this is a bad cover version. Nah, not having it. I I actually think both of them are bad cover versions. I mean, the the simple the simple fact of the matter is is that that you are you are correct in that really what you want is both of them. Yeah, you want you want Freddie, you want Bowie, and to this I cannot understand why they didn't play this at Live Aid. With Bowie, uh, f- like fuck, he's, he's backstage. He's coming on in an hour's time. Just, come on, Dave, get up. <laughs> no, seriously though. No, no, you, it's a good point. Because there's your fucking live aid iconic moment. Anyway, no, I don't like this version. Okay, so we then move on to the little-known song, Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, yeah, we're into the we're into back into the classic. Well, we're into a run of classics, really. Mm-hmm. What can you say? It's a great song. Yep. It's a brilliant way to start the encore. Yep. And it's it's fantastically performed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I don't have anything else to say to that. It's a great version of a great song. Once again, David Bowie's fifty three years of age at this point. He is literally just recovered from laryngitis. Bravo, sir. You sound incredible singing this song. I mm-hmm. love Ziggy Stardust. Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars is, without doubt, my favourite David Bowie album. Uh, and so I am disappointed that uh, in his Glastonbury headline set, he played only two songs from that album. Could have done with a Moon Age Daydream. I fucking exa- oh, God, I love Moon Age Daydream. Even fucking Suffragette City. A nice, quick... Punk rock song, anyway. Mm-hmm. Earl Slick's guitar, filthy. He may not be Mick Ronson, who we've talked about before, was a phenomenal guitarist and was great on this album. Oh, yeah. But my God, he's still fucking good. Brilliant. Love it. Okay. So then we move into Heroes. Mm-hmm. So it has a slightly low-key intro before the band, the band kicks in. You talked about earlier whether he could have got a some guests involved. It would have been nice had he got Fripp to play. Oh god, yeah. I mean El Slick does a does a very good job on this, but it's not Fripp. Okay. You've been very diplomatic there. So Heroes should leave you completely flawed. It should be the pinnacle of the show. It's what everyone's waited for. It just sounds like, I'm sorry again, it's a bad cover version. Where's Robert Fripp? No, it's not just where's Robert Fripp, okay? Because that's a disservice to Earl Slick. Where is the endless sustain on the guitar riff? Mm-hmm. I can't disagree with that. Where are Brian Eno's swirling atmospheric synths? This version, I'm sorry, it has absolutely none of the guts that the original beloved, classic, iconic, fucking phenomenal heroes 
does. It it lacks it lacks it lacks the power. It, yeah, completely. And I, you know, I think I think it's done okay. But heroes should never be okay. Exactly. It says, "Oh, he played heroes. Was it good? It was okay. Oh, okay." It, and well, yeah, you know that I've talked about my love of so many different songs and versions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. eras. Of, what picture did I have up in my house for ages? Exactly the cover of Heroes. We talked about it before an album clash, in fact. Because I, it is my favourite song, mm. and it, it is a slightly disappointing version. I think everyone's trying their best. I, 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 I think your, I think your, your fandom is tempering your. It's, it, it's more than slightly disappointing. Come on, everyone's trying their best. Uh, I can't criticise anyone. I think Bowie sounds really good singing it, actually, I've got to say. but it, It's still Heroes, but... Oh, God, I need It's a Frit. karaoke version of Heroes. You need... I need Frit. You need Eno as well. You need Eno. I could live without Eno if I've got no, Frit. No, you, ne- you need the synths. <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> this is quite an existential conversation we've managed to trim yeah. into. <laughs> um, I, this is a massive disappointment for me. It's... It should be great. It's not, and I actually I don't like this version. And I'm sure we've not really talked about song positioning in the set. It's all over the show, <laughs> particularly wh- where we're going. Just let's let, let's let. I've got a lot to say about that. Let's give it a few minutes. Let's go on to the next track first because <laughs> okay. I am going to open up. Okay, so we move on to "Let's Dance," the penultimate uh, song on the album. Uh, starts with a flamenco guitar style opening, mm. which was interesting. What did you think of the flamenco? In all seriousness, I liked it. I really liked it. So, okay, I'm going to shock you here. We've spoken before. I don't like Let's Dance the album. I don't like the song. I really like this version. I love the fact that it starts with the flamenco Latino mm-hmm. theme. It. it, it puts you off guard and the fact that then you get to the end of the first chorus and fucking bang in you go here we are yeah great like it works really well and like i think once like that flamenco going into the full band i think it underlines and i know you don't like the song but it underlines the the fit the pop efficiency of the song that it's a good pop song Mm -hmm. You might not like it, but it you can see the hooks in yep. it straight away. Yep. I agree. It, 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 I wouldn't say it's maybe reappraised the song, but it certainly had me thinking all the things that you've just said and, and thought, yeah, actually, you can see exactly what Nile Rogers and David Bowie's vision was for the song. So fair play. Um, it's a great version. I really, really, mm-hmm. really like this. And you've yeah, got, it's really good. Towards the end, you've got more fantastic, Fantastic Earl Slick guitar, which oh, enhances yeah. my enjoyment greatly. And it would be fine if we ended there. So, yeah, let's... But we don't. So what do we end with, Kev? We end with I'm Afraid of Americans. Another song from Earthling. So it's a really odd choice to end the set. It's, it's really odd. It's a fucking disastrous choice to end the set. So, actually, I think it's a well-performed version of the song. Yes, they perform it really well. And if it's mid-set, <laughs> exactly, then you go fine. Just fuck off Little Wonder and play this instead. If you want to play a song from Earthling, I'll go, I'll play that one instead. Fine. 
Yeah. Don't fucking end your Glastonbury headline set with this. It's, it's a really odd ending. So, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to go again to... I'm, I'm, so, I referred to you two earlier. They fucked up their landing of their Glastow set because they played Out of Control, a song which no one knows apart from really hardcore U2 fans. So, they fucked it up. But let's go back to McCartney from mere weeks ago. So, he enters main set with Hey Jude. Then he does his encore... And his closer, as it is for all of his live shows, is you start with Golden Slumbers, you Which go I to loved. Carry That Way, then you go to yeah. the end. Fucking what an end. Uh, like just That's a proper massive. way to end the gig. It is a proper way yeah. to end the gig. Not a, here's a song from that album I released in the late 90s that no one gave a shit about. Yeah, it's, it's a really odd way to end because mm-hmm. like everyone's up and then you get this kind of, very well done version of of a song that I'm not hugely I don't I don't dislike I don't love it it's fine but yeah it's a very poor choice to end the set mm-hmm. agreed like whilst I didn't dislike a little wonder as much as as much as you you put that I'm afraid of Americans there you finish with let's dance or you finish with heroes I think you finish with heroes personally but um, I, I can see the logic to the finishing with Let's Dance because if you play Heroes properly, it's the emotional weight. Then you go, well, look, we're going to leave you with something upbeat, and let's. So I can see the logic to it. Well, let's let's dance get to everyone going to Arcadia and having exactly. a lovely, lovely dance, even though it's Sunday night. You don't finish with I'm Afraid of Americans. No. It's just fucking weird. We are agreed, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is that. So, in terms of reviews. It has been universally kind of lauded as a amazing Glastonbury moment, an amazing Glastonbury set. So as as mentioned two weeks ago, that it got four out of five in uncut. But the you know we you listen to to any of the kind of contemporary reviews of it, or sort of subsequently, you know Emily Evis talks about it and says. Bowie's 2000 performance is always one which I think of in terms of the best performances at Glastonbury. It was spellbinding. He has an, he had enormous crowd transfix. I think Bowie had a deep relationship with Worthy Farm and he told some wonderful stories about his first time at the festival. And, got, you know, as, as we said at the start of this, Mike Garson said it was his favourite gig that he did with, with Bowie. Like... It's a it's a funny one because I, so I, I, I I'm I, I have my own views on this, but I'm genuinely interested to hear your reflections on those comments and on that review. So I think I think it the fact that it was it wasn't available to see for such a long time it grew in the the memory. Of, so it became a, an amazing, this amazing, wonderful Glastonbury moment that you caught. Like it was unbelievable. I think it's it's a solid set. There are things. Well, well, I'll get into this when we talk about the like our full kind of review of it. But I don't think it deserves the. I mean, Stevie Wonder, I thought was <laughs> fucking brilliant. I mean, again, I'm. I'm talking about someone that I adore, so you know. Or Blur, Blur when they played, when they came back and played Glastonbury, they were amazing. They were fucking great. You know, the Stones, like people I know who went to that said, I didn't think they were going to be that good at that age, but my God, like Jagger just himself was unbelievable. 
so you know, like, and as we said, McCartney, there were some choices that I wouldn't have made in his set, but like, fuck me, he knew how to start and and to end it. Yeah, absolutely right. So I largely agree, and we know that you are a much, much bigger David Bowie fan than I am. I wanted to hear your views first because. Well, so I was at Glastonbury in 98 when Blur first headlined, and they were fucking incredible then. And it was a fucking peat bog, practically. It was fucking mm-hmm. minging that year. At least it wasn't the dance tent. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, fair point. Would you like to explain to the dear listeners? So, yes. In uh, Glastonbury 1998 uh, was a very, very wet Glastonbury. And it was my first ever festival. Not my just my first ever Glastonbury. It was a proper festival. mud monster one, wasn't Oh, it? my God. Well, it was. We were wading waist high in brown water. And... Uh, so obviously they've got the they've got the tractors that come round and clear out the chemical toilets with the muck spreader device, which also has a suck setting. Let's just leave it there, shall we? <laughs> the rain had been so severe in the middle of the week that I, th- I say I think this was Friday. It might have been Saturday. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. And this was before they had the whole dance areas. This was just one dance tent back in 98. Anyway, they took said toilet cleaning device <laughs> tractor thing down to the dance tent because the mud was so, so bad, you could, it was safety risk to get anyone in. So the idea was to use the, the big, massive tractor hoover. Like, imagine a massive Henry Hoover towed by a tractor. That's what it was. There you go. <laughs> use that to clean out some of the mud from the dance tent. Which was a great idea, except that someone left the thing on blow rather than <laughs> suck. So what happened is the dance tent got sprayed with a load of shit from the chemical toilet and was closed for the entire day. And for the rest of the weekend, there was a really odd smell in there. <laughs> oh dear. That took a lot longer than I thought it was going to take to tell that story. But it's a funny one. So might well end up on Twitter uh, if I can edit it down to 60 seconds or less. We all have our Glastonbury stories. <laughs> but anyway, so my point was saying, I saw Blur 98. Well, I saw Dylan 98 as well. Fucking hell, I saw Bob Dylan 98. He wasn't great. It was good, but it wasn't great. It was, it was very subdued. Just say no more about that. REM were, and they were Friday night headliners, not Sunday night headliners, but REM were the big legendary headliners in 99, and they fucking nailed it. They absolutely nailed it. And whilst I wasn't there in 2000, so I can't compare directly, because no matter how much you watch or listen to, it's never the same as being there. I'm sorry, Bowie gets nowhere near. And you say McCartney, you were there for Stevie, your sister was there for the Stones, etc., etc. The Stooges. This, oh, fuck me, the Stooges were so good. How about uh, Brian Ferry, Kev? <laughs> Brian Ferry was good. <laughs> My point is, why I think the Bowie set is lauded so much is I actually think that it helped create what Glastonbury is today. Glastonbury was massive through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Glastonbury is Fucking huge today. From my first Glastonbury, I've not been to Glastonbury for over a decade. It was twice as big when I last went. And to look at it now, it just looks even bigger and bigger and bigger. I actually, I think Bowie performing 
and he performed very well. You can t- we can talk about setlist composition and everything, and and we've done that already. Bowie himself performed very very well, as did his band throughout. Very very well is is reductive. He was brilliant. Okay. So I think Bowie helped create what Glastonbury has become, and that is why I think his set is so lauded. I don't think it deserves all that praise, but I can understand why it is apportioned in that way. So I, I get the point that you're making. It's the it's the unmissable Glastonbury moment. Exactly. A bit like the, you know, Shirley Bassey in the uh, Sparkly Wellies, you know, Pulp playing in 96. 95. And killing it, you know, so... Yeah. Radiohead 97. You could yeah, argue yeah. It. You could say it started there actually, but exactly that. Yes. It's that it's that legendary moment, the thing mm-hmm. that everyone talks about. Oh yeah, I was there when precisely that. And I think every Glastonbury since then has tried to have that legendary moment even though you could listen to the Bowie set as we've just been through and say I don't think it was that legendary actually. I I really don't. I have to say I really don't. But I think that's what it created anyway. Sorry. Yeah. So well, that's we've we've gone into legacy there, haven't we? Really. Yeah. We. You know. So what was I, th- I suppose we've really covered the legacy because we know we know what happens happens exactly. afterwards. You know. Yeah. So what was your best song? What was your worst song? All right, I'm going to do my worst song first because it's no surprise. It's little wonder. It's just shit. There you go. My best song. This was a harder choice. I would love to say Life on Mars. Because as I said, it's the first time in the whole whole set that I do get the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. But to me, it just misses so much at the end that I can't. I think Fame sounds brilliant and it's really close to being my favourite song on this. Uh, But I'm going to go Ziggy Stardust. Because I think it's probably the pinnacle of the whole show and it probably should close the main set before the encore yeah ziggy how about you okay really really solid choice so i'll go in my worst song first it's um i'm afraid of americans i don't think it's the worst song on the set but i think because of where it's positioned Mm -hmm. it doesn't work best song so i'm gonna give strong shout outs to stay because i adore that song I'm going to give a shout out to Station to Station for the simple reason for the fucking boldness of putting a song like that in your set. No. And I know you're not I know you're not a fan. It's really hard. I think I think I'm going to go with Starman because of where it's positioned in the set after Station to Station and the fact it should open and the fact that the crowd fucking buzz off it. It yeah, doesn't okay. matter that it should open. Like it's just performed brilliantly. Alright, fair enough. Good choice. Good choice. Alright, should we get to scoring then? I think we should. Okay. So as it's your choice, you're first on Queen and then as you yeah. uh, you and will then finish. You go first on Bowie yeah. and I'll finish. Yeah, all right, all right, okay. So Queen Live at Wembley, as I said, I first heard bits of it and saw the bits of the performance when it was recorded in the 80s, you know. It's a fucking great show and it's stuck with me ever since. And it's a band actually at the pinnacle of its showmanship, if you like, its performative powers. Clearly Live Aid was the standout Queen performance in terms of the 
reaction it got, and deservedly so. But my God, this is two and a half hours of relentlessness. It's too long as an album. The dips are massive, and there are odd choices on the set list in terms of both of the songs they chose and where they are placed in the concert, okay? So it is nowhere near perfect. But as I said right at the start of when we were going through the album, the way they've paced that set list to start with such high energy and keep it for so long, then you've got a dip, then you build to the crescendo of your main set in a really clever way actually with that 50s rock and roll medley, then you've got your encore, bang. It's brilliant. Masters of their art, despite what has happened to them since, which is nothing because they disappeared in obscurity after Freddie died. (laughs) So whilst it's far from perfect, it's really fucking good. So I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. Okay. How about you? So, um, there are some incredible high points in this set. As we've said, the Freddie Mercury is the epitome of a frontman. He is the absolute apogee of that art. Mm-hmm. And he, at times here, he is absolutely spellbinding in his performance, in his in everything that he does. So, you know, mm-hmm. there are some incredible high points. There are some really, really odd choices. Mm-hmm. Friends will be friends, like as an encore song, is fucking <laughs> wild. And I cannot get past the Brighton rock. <laughs> like, and then you go into the acoustic, we're, we're a serious, serious issues band <laughs> section. It, yeah. And it properly fucking threw me for, like, it really like took a while to, for me to, to warm back up after that. And it's also te- it's testament to how good Freddie is that the fact I fucking did warm back up after that. <laughs> yep, fair point. So I'm going to come down on a 7 out of 10. I think it's really there's really good bits, but yeah, it's not perfect. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Can't disagree with anything you've said there, really. So uh, we, we, we scored it differently, but I think we made very similar points. Mm-hmm. So it's over to Bowie, it's over to Glastow, and it's over to you to start us off. So, I think from just generally talking about the set, that there are some there are some very odd decisions. The end, the last song is fucking nuts. Like that's that's a really poor decision. The green sleeves thing, including that on the album, that's that's an interesting choice. I'm not as opposed to you as opening with "Wild Wild Is the Wind," but I I will hold my hand up and say that this is a set that is very much tailored to. Lots of things that I really like. Like he basically plays most of Station to Station, so I'm very much on board with that. So I will hold my hand up to that. He takes his time to really get into it, but once he does, and once the band are really on it, then they are fucking rollicking along, and there are some absolute caustic performances that are fantastic. He sounds great, and you know this. We're only talking sort of four years later. He has the heart attack and he doesn't tour again. Mm. So, you know, this isn't long off one of his final performances. I really, I did enjoy the set. 
there are things, there are bits about it that I didn't expect to like. So I really didn't expect to like Hello Space Boy. And I did enjoy it. I can't deny that. So I'm going to come down as an 8 out of 10. It's not perfect, but I think it's a really good live set. And I, I did enjoy it. Oh, fuck. You're giving me a massive problem now. So Queen got 15 out of 20. And you've just given Bowie 8 out of 10. So what am I going to go? It's on me. The set list is all over the show. It's a set list tailored for Bowie aficionados. And not one that's tailored for, I would say, a Glastonbury crowd, actually. The greatest hits crowd, which I would be one of. I like Bowie, but Mm -hmm. I'm nowhere near as into Bowie as you are. You open oddly with lounge piano. What's that about? You start with a song which isn't one of your most famous. It's a cover anyway. And then some of the favorites, some of the classics, they don't hit. They don't resonate. They do sound hollow. Life on Mars is great for two thirds and then it just dies for me. Heroes, as I said, it should leave me full. It doesn't. But there are some, as you said, some absolute bangers on there. Some real high points. The two songs he plays off Ziggy are fucking brilliant. I agree. Stay sounds really good. Fame is a fucking tour de force. Let's Dance. I don't like that song, but that's a great performance. (laughs) You know, it makes me tap my toes every time. So, yeah, it, it is as a set list all over the show, as an album problematic but when it's high it is fucking high and much as well i didn't say it when i went through the queen album one of the things you got to take into account with freddie is his physical condition his health was rapidly deteriorating at that point like you said you're a few years out from bowie having a, a massive heart attack and he's just got over laryngitis when he does this performance so that you know needs to be taken into account oh christ I hate draws. I hate draws, especially on our first show back. But I can't be harsh enough to give this six and a half out of, out of ten. I, it's that's It deserves more than that. Seven. I'm sorry, it's seven. I can't give it the win. No, I because think... Because I don't think it deserves to win. So we've got, we've got a draw. I think that's actually the right decision. That they are both good sets, but they are flawed. Hmm. Um, I don't think either of them, for different reasons, were strong enough to triumph over the other. Yeah, they're both too long. <laughs> oh yeah, they are both too long. I, I, the other thing, as I said when we were doing the legacy, I, I, I really do think that this Bowie set, whether you agree with it or not, helped create the legend that Glastonbury now is, mm-hmm. and so that deserves recognition. But yeah, sorry guys, we've we've been off for over two months. We've come back and we've completely shit the bed because we've got a draw. Let's <laughs> <laughs> clash back. So both Queen live at Wembley 86 and David Bowie live at Glastonbury from 2000. Score 15 out of 20. And uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Soz. I enjoyed that though, Kev. How about no, you? that was a good. That was good. I enjoyed. I I did have a good time uh, listening to both of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, what are we doing next? Okay, so um, we 
move on from the obscure little-known artists of Queen and David Bowie to follow that up with another pair of obscure tiny artists with very little support. So our next clash is 1970s Get Your Yah Yars Out by the Rolling Stones <laughs> versus Live at Leeds by The Who. Oh, I knew it was going to live at Leeds. I knew that's where you were going, but great. Oh my God, we can have lovely Pete Townsend chat and <laughs> lovely Roger Daltrey chat as well. Where's the book, Pete? <laughs> oh, great stuff. Looking forward to that. <laughs> Two great choices. <laughs> uh, right, so the Stones versus the Who. Get in. Yeah. So I've got Get Your Yaya's Out. I'll, uh, I will get my yayas out ready for our next clash in uh, our next show in two weeks' time. Before then, however, until then, Kev, it's uh, time for you to tell us what was going on on Twitter about, what, four weeks ago by the time this goes out? Yeah. Um, so you may or may not be aware of a hateful right-wing gobshite uh, called Jordan Peterson, a Canadian psychologist. <laughs> yeah. Um, who has been banned from Twitter for a transphobic tweet about Elliot Page or refusing to use Elliot Page's name. Um, So whilst on Twitter, if you put Jordan Peterson in, you can watch the video of him crying and being a whining little bitch about having a Twitter ban. Um, (laughs) And it is fucking hilarious. So I strongly advise you to do that. And enjoy and drink in that fuckwit's tears. That transphobic fuckwit's tears. Indeed. <laughs> Whilst on Twitter, you may also want to check out our Twitter page, at Clash Album. If you like carefully curated quality content, you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school, you can send us an email to at albumclash at gmail.com. Boom. And if you'd like to send us an email explaining uh, how you are a transphobe, then feel free. But all I will say in reply to that email is trans men are men, trans women are women, and if you disagree, you are a bigot. Yeah, anyone who wants to send any transphobic shit, fuck off, you ain't our people. Absolutely right. I mean, this is this is a strong start to the show. <laughs> yep, we are setting our stall out. Absolutely. Guys, we really hope that you have enjoyed our first clash back after our break. It's been a long clash. <laughs> Two long albums. Uh, and, and actually, we ain't getting much shorter with the next one either, for that matter. Um, well, the so... It will be interesting to see because there aren't a lot of tracks on Live at Leeds, but the <laughs> there aren't a lot of tracks on Live at Leeds. Yes. We will get into that. <laughs> uh, yeah, looking forward to it. But yeah, it's good to be back, guys. We'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, like, subscribe, tell your mates. Fuck, tell your mates. We keep telling you this. Do we have to come around your houses and force you to phone all your mates and say, "Listen to this." podcast by these two english mentalists i I will i'll do it if we need to i will i really will (laughs) thanks very much uh i have been tim according to my passport i am still kev and we shall see you in a couple of weeks time